You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are very quickly coming to the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, and then we'll be moving right into Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church. Um, but we're coming to the, we've entered into the final instructions uh, to this church as Paul wraps up his letter. We've been looking at um, verses 12 through 22 over the last couple of weeks, and we will finish up today with 16 through 22. But as we've done in the past few weeks, I want to read the entire chapter once again to set the context for the instruction that Paul is giving us here at the end of chapter 5. So we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And we've talked about how that was an eschatological passage that Paul had used to give encouragement to the people in the midst of their persecution, to give encouragement to the people in the midst of them losing their loved ones. They had loved ones who were passing away, who were not going to make it to the return of Jesus, and they were concerned about it. They didn't know what was happening. What, what's the, the long-term future for my friends and my family? And so Paul wanted to communicate to them, hey, they're okay. They're okay. He says, whether you're awake or asleep or passed away. He says, we're going to live with Jesus for eternity. And he assures them that their souls are with Jesus right now, that they're going to come with Jesus when Jesus returns the second time. Paul says, use this eschatological information. Use this end times discussion for the purpose of encouragement. He says, I didn't just tell you all this so that you could uh, be assured of what's going to happen in the future just for the sake of your curiosity. He says, I want you to know this information so you can encourage each other with this information. Then he comes to kind of the, all right, everybody back to the present time type talk. He says, here's what's going to happen in the future, but don't neglect what you have to do right now. Don't get caught with your head in the clouds, looking forward to that day of glory all the time to where you stop doing your day-to-day responsibilities. And so what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks is the way that our church is to function until that day. So we've entitled this section, Church Life Until the End. And we've seen some relationships that are supposed to be taking place within the church until that day Jesus comes back. We've looked at the relationship of leadership in Sovereign Hope to the flock of Sovereign Hope. We see that in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We see three different aspects of what the leadership of this church at Thessalonica was supposed to do. 
and we're taking those three things and saying that this is what the leadership at Sovereign Hope is supposed to do. The first thing is that they are to labor among you. We said that the Greek implications there is that they are to work hard. That the leadership at Sovereign Hope, the leadership at Thessalonica, is to work hard, to labor hard amongst the people. That they have been tasked with the responsibility of shepherding the church, and they are to work hard at those responsibilities. Not only that, they are to exercise authority. He says, labor among you and are over you in the Lord. It's a big responsibility for leadership to to not only work hard, but to exercise authority as they work. To provide guidance and authoritative leadership that God has tasked them with, tasked us with as leadership here at Sovereign Hope. And then they're also told to admonish the people, to provide instruction, to provide encouragement, to provide teaching. We know from Scripture that that God has given leadership to the church so that they can equip the church to do the work of the ministry. And so in that laboring and working hard, there's that admonishing aspect for the leadership here at Sovereign Hope that we are to teach and train you guys up to do the work of the ministry. But then there's also the relationship of the flock to leadership. They're to show respect, to esteem them, to submit to them. We said that um, the, the idea of the respect and esteem, it was an idea of going beyond the bounds of love, going out of bounds. When we looked at the passage in Galatians where Paul talked to the church at Galatia and said, if, if necessary, you guys had reached the point where you were ready to give me your eyes, that if I had had need of, of new eyes, you were ready to cut yours out and give them to me, that you had that type of love for me as your leader. And we said that, unfortunately, churches aren't known for that type of love for their pastoral leadership, but that Paul was calling this church to love their leadership in that way. And then last week, we looked at the relationship of the flock to the flock. We looked at pastoral responsibilities that you guys have towards each other. That this doesn't just fall upon elder leadership at Sovereign Hope, doesn't fall upon deacons at Sovereign Hope. It falls on the member of Sovereign Hope and their responsibility to other members at Sovereign Hope. And then again, it was, it was given to us in a triad of instruction, in a three-part uh, three instruction. He says in... Verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So last week we looked at our responsibility to admonish the idle. We described the idle as people who have broken rank. It's a, it's a military term, someone who has broken rank from what everybody else is doing. Paul says, those of you that um, in the church that have kind of strayed away from normal Christian church life, those of you that have started doing your own thing, aren't submitting to authority anymore, um, maybe have become blinded to sin. It's not someone who is fighting sin. It's not someone who is struggling with a sin. It's someone who's just saying, I'm going to choose to sin. I want to do this. And, and I'm going to try to cover it up, maybe try to hide it. He says, you admonish those people. You identify people in your church who have become idle, who have broken rank, who have kind of gotten off track from what the normal church life is, the normal Christian life. He says, you admonish them. And we said that word really means to, to speak sense to their mind, to speak sense to their brain, to give them sense about the situation, to help them see their blindness, to help them see their error in the situation, to admonish the idle. Secondly, to encourage the faint-hearted. We said these are people who have become discouraged 
in their Christian walk because of circumstances. They become faint-hearted. They are, they're wanting to kind of stop in their pursuit of Jesus because they're discouraged. We said in their context it may very well have been tied to the loss of loved ones. But they had begun to lose people who were being persecuted. And it was causing discouragement, kind of a, I don't want to do this anymore if this is what it looks like. I didn't, I didn't know that we were signing up for this type of result in our life. I didn't know we were going to lose people along the way. People that wanted to kind of quit. He says, you encourage them. You help them to press on in their faith. And then you help the weak. You help the weak. And we said, this is the, the guy who, who is trying to fight his sin. He recognizes this is an area of weakness in his life. And he's crying out for help. He says, I can't find victory in this. I need help with this. I am, I'm struggling in this area. It's not the idle guy who is giving himself to his sin because he wants to do it. It's the guy who can't seem to not do it. He's got that mentality of Paul. He says, I'm, I'm doing the things that I don't want to do, and I'm not doing the things that I want to do. Three different ways that we minister to each other here at Sovereign Hope. Three different ways. We said admonish the idle. That guy, you have to kind of get in his face and help him to see that he's blind. You don't have to get in the face of the weak guy. He knows he's wrong. He knows he's got issues. He knows he's got problems. And you come at him a different way. You come at him with a helpful mindset. You encourage the faint-hearted. You admonish the idle. So we saw the ways that we're to interact with other members here at Sovereign Hope last week. And then he gives us those helpful, helpful reminders. Be patient with them all that people typically don't respond the first time you meet with them to admonish them or to help them or to encourage them, that a lot of times these are a process with people. So we have to be patient with each other, patient, let the Holy Spirit do the work in us, trusting that he will complete that work, as Paul says in Philippians 1. And then see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And that brings us to our text for today, verse 16 through 22. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. I was talking with Luke before we started today, and he was commenting about how a lot of times Paul will end his letters with some of these just quick bullet sentences like do this do this do this do this do this and maybe at first you don't see how they're connected it's almost like paul's running out of paper and he's got to fit this in at the bottom before he he uses up the last space that he has but these things do fit together and he's got purpose for why he says what he says and that's why i wanted to once again set the context for this entire chapter so as we get into the text today we see why is he saying these things why is he addressing these type of issues now, we said again, this is church life. This is what the church is supposed to look like until Jesus comes back. He says previously that he wants us to be at peace among ourselves. Be at peace by submitting to leadership. Be at peace by trying to help each other fight sin. Helping each other be encouraged. Helping each other see what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And then he continues that same theme with verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He gives us another triad of instruction, another three-point piece of instruction for us. And we're calling this today kind of the relationship that we have to our chief shepherd. The relationship of the flock to the chief shepherd. That's our relationship to Jesus. 
This is what we as a church are supposed to reflect back to our Heavenly Father. We've got the relationship between leadership and the flock, flock to leadership, flock to flock. And now we look at our responsibilities to our chief shepherd, the one who is ultimately the authority of our church here at Sovereign Hope. Some initial, initial thoughts that I wrote down in my notes here. The commands in these verses are to be obeyed corporately and regularly. When he tells us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, we see that there's this, this mindset, this idea of always be doing these things. So it's a, an, a command, an instruction, but we're to receive it in a way where we see that we have a responsibility to do this all the time. But then if you look at the Greek, these words, these, these verbs are in the plural form. These are in the plural form. So it's not, Dan, go off on your own and rejoice always and pray without ceasing and do these things on your own. He's not to give thanks for, for everything in all circumstances by himself. This is instruction given to the church. And a lot of commentators believe that this is really instruction for how we're to worship together on a Sunday as a church. That These are to be points that are brought up in our order of service regularly. And so as I was reading and studying this, this is why I wanted to get some of you guys up here to share things that are encouraging you, things that you're thankful for. Because the instruction that Paul says is that we're to be rejoicing always together, that we're to be giving thanks together when we come together. And so as we continue to move forward as Sovereign Hope, we want to get more and more of you guys involved in our services on Sundays. We want to follow suit with what Paul's telling them here, to rejoice constantly, to pray constantly, to give thanks constantly, and to do that corporately. Because I can stand up here all the time and tell you what God's doing in my life. But there's a, a new level of encouragement as you begin to hear each other sharing what God's doing in your life as well. So we want to incorporate that more and more. Secondly, the commands are designed to strengthen ourselves so that we don't become the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. He's just told us how to interact with each other when some of us start to become idle, when some of us start to become faint-hearted, when some of us start to become weak. But if we do these things, this is how we proactively stop from becoming the people that need that type of help, that need that type of encouragement, that need that type of admonishment. So in order for us to have some people that are mature and able to help weak people and admonish idle people, they've got to do these things so that they're at a point where they aren't those type of people. Does that make sense? He says, you're going to have people who are idle and faint-hearted and weak. They're going to need help. And they're going to need help by people in the church. And in order to keep everybody from being either idle, faint-hearted, or weak, and the pastor having to help everybody, he gives us some proactive things that we can do so that we don't become idle, faint-hearted, and weak. And we're going to see those instructions this morning. The theme of the commands that we see here are trust and contentment. I put in my notes, will I be content to do what God has asked me? Will I be content in my life to do what God has asked me and not become the idle person who breaks rank? Idle person looks around and says, Okay, this is the Christian life. This is the church life. Uh, I think I'm going to go over here and do some of this stuff. I'm not really wanting to do what everybody else is doing. Will I be content with the instructions, with the marching orders that have been given to me in Scripture for what I'm supposed to be as a believer, as a member of this church? And will I trust him enough to receive everything that comes my way 
or doesn't come my way. So two aspects here to these commands. Will I be content enough with what God has called me to do and be as a Christian so that I don't become the idol guy? And will I trust him enough to receive the things that he gives me and the things that he doesn't give me so that I don't become the faint-hearted guy, so that I don't become the weak guy? Will I trust God's commands enough to fight sin and say, okay, God has called me to do these things because they're good for me? Will I trust what he says about those issues enough to turn from those things? Will I trust him enough to be not discouraged when a loved one dies? To not become discouraged to the point of wanting to quit when I lose my job, when my circumstances change? Will I trust him enough to not be the faint-hearted guy that needs somebody always encouraging him to press on? Will I trust him enough? Will I be a content enough? These are the commands that Paul gives us to fight against these wrong conditions. Psalm 16:11 says, it gives us some um, instruction about this. Psalm 16:11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Satan wants nothing more than for us to doubt God's goodness in our life. He wants us to doubt the direction of the church, doubt the direction that we're supposed to go as Christians. Satan wants us to become the idle person who's not content with what God's called us to. It's the same ploy that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. God wants you to do what? God won't let you do what? You need to be doing this. God's not good. He's trying to hold you back. He's, he's trying to withhold things from you. You need to doubt his goodness is essentially what Satan says, and Adam and Eve stray. They break rank because they doubt God's goodness. The psalmist says, your, your path of life, it's full of joy, it's full of pleasure. We have to trust that God is after our joy. He wants our joy. He wants to give us joy on this earth that he's created. In Psalm 28, 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield, and him my, my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart, my heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. We see the psalmist rejoicing over who God is, rejoicing over what God has done in his life. And it's going to carry us into our verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, where we are told to rejoice always. So let's look at these commands that we're given, these positive commands that we're given here in 16 17 and 18 a little bit more closely. The first one is always rejoice. The first instruction that we're given this morning is to always rejoice, to rejoice always. I wrote in my notes, my joy cannot be shaped by circumstances, but by the one who controls my circumstances. Make sure you get that. My joy cannot be shaped by circumstances. Instead, my joy must be shaped by the one who controls my circumstances. We see this theme run rampant through the book of Philippians. It's known as the book of joy. We see over and over in that passage how the Christian's joy has to be grounded in God's sovereignty, that God's in control of everything. That we don't allow our joy to be shaped by our ever-changing circumstances. I'm not thankful this year because I have a family and a job and a working car and God's been good to me over this past year. And then next year, if I don't have those things, all of a sudden I'm not a thankful person and I'm not posting all over Facebook about what I'm rejoicing over. Then I'm, I'm a person who rejoices always. 
that if God has seen fit to give me a family and give me a car and give me a house, then by all means I rejoice and praise God for those things. But I'm a person who rejoices even if those things are taken away. Because my joy is not shaped by my circumstances that can change. It's shaped by the one who controls my circumstances. And Scripture is very clear that God does not change. That he's immutable. He doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his plans. And he doesn't change his purposes. This is a command. Paul has to instruct them to do this. And what that tells me is that this is not my natural response. It's not something that I just wake up and say, hey, I'm going to be happy all day today no matter what happens. I won't even have to think about it. I won't even have to prepare for it. I won't even have to pray about it. I'm just that type of guy. No, Paul obviously realizes this is not what's going to happen on a daily basis unless you fight for this, unless you pursue this. You're not going to rejoice when you lose your job. You're not going to rejoice when you find out that someone you love dearly has only six months to live. That's not going to be your natural response. So Paul has to make them mindful that as believers, they're to be rejoicing people, and they're going to have to prepare to be these type of people because it's not a natural response. And so he commands them to do this. And I kind of jotted in my notes, a helpful way to pursue this is to be around people that are doing this as well. This is why Christian fellowship is so crucial. This is why we believe that while the Scripture doesn't come right out and say you have to be a member of a local church, it's implied all through the New Testament that you will fail miserably as a Christian if you are not connected to a local church. We've got to be around people who are fighting to rejoice in all circumstances. Because if all my time is spent with unbelievers, and we're not saying that you can't be friends with unbelievers, but if the majority of my time, the majority of my fellowship, the majority of my companionship were to be with unbelievers who don't have the same foundation to rejoice in, odds are when difficult situations come into my life, I'm not going to be found rejoicing. I'm going to get my perspective on life from people who don't have a correct perspective. So we need to be around people who are fighting for this same type mentality. And that's why I said these verbs are corporately plural. This is to happen within the local church. John MacArthur says, The Christian's joy constantly flows from what the believer continually knows to be true about God. Let me read that part again. The Christian's joy constantly flows from what the believer continually knows to be true about God and about his eternal saving relationship to him regardless of his circumstances. Our foundation for rejoicing is that God is good and his plans are good. And when we really buy into that, we buy into that Romans 8:28 truth that we're children of God, everything that comes into our life, God uses for good. Even the things that we would call evil, he uses for our good. Now we shared this morning things that we are to be thankful for, and I jotted down some things um, that I'm thankful for as well. One big thing that Scripture constantly calls us to, the thing that we're to rejoice over constantly, is the fact that we are included now in God's family, that there's inclusion, Scripture tells us, into what God is doing, into his plans, into his purposes. If you see, and if you want to turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 10 and 11. And if you want to jot down Psalm 32, that's a longer passage that we're not going to have time to read this morning, but it would be maybe helpful for you to look at that during this week, a passage that you can reflect on that also talks about our inclusion 
into what God is doing. But in Matthew 5, 10 through 11, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Remember, we're told to rejoice always in 1 Thessalonians. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, you, you find joy and encouragement that you are being considered the same as some of the most faithful people to God ever. He says, look at the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, this is before Jesus dies, but eventually the New Testament writers will say, find joy in the fact that you are being persecuted like Jesus. Jesus is saying, you consider it a, a, a point of rejoicing when you are being treated the same way as some of the heroes of the faith. You can look at Hebrews 11 and see the men that were sawed in half, fed the lions, people who endured difficult times because of their faith. He says, you find joy over the fact that you are included with those people, that you have reward in heaven just as those people did. There's that inclusion that we have now. Luke, Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Jesus had sent out 72 people uh, to do ministry, and they come back rejoicing. Verse 17, it says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So, I mean, everybody is just amped up about this ministry. Like, wow, like you are, you are calling us to participate in your ministry. You're giving us power to, to see people come to you for salvation. We're seeing demonic forces like have to, have to move away because people are, are, are having the gospel shown into their hearts, shining into their hearts, and they're not blinded anymore. Jesus says in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I think the reason that he calls them to that is that they're, I mean, they just had a great experience, like a summer camp type experience. Like, we had this many people get saved. It's unbelievable. Like, wow, this is awesome. We really are catching men. We weren't sure if that was going to work, but it's working. And Jesus says, don't rejoice. Don't, don't let your joy be based on your success in ministry. Because next week you're going to go do the same thing potentially and nobody's going to get saved. You're going to have doors slammed in your face. You're going to have coworkers walk away from the conversation and they want nothing to do with hearing about the gospel. Jesus says, don't find joy in your success in ministry. He says, find joy that your name is written in heaven because that's something that doesn't change. He says, don't find ultimate joy in a great week that you just had. Be thankful for it. Be happy about it. You know, give praise and thanks to God for it. But if that's what you're most excited about, what happens next week when you can't replicate that? He says, you rejoice over the fact that your name is written in heaven, that you have future glory to look forward to, and that doesn't change from week to week. That doesn't change from week to week. Um, we can see Acts 5. This, I mean, this is, a, this is a, an odd passage because you read it and you're like, man, like those guys have to have the Holy Spirit for it to play out the way that it just did. In Acts chapter 5, verse 40. The apostles have been arrested and have been persecuted for their faith. In verse 40, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. 
charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Here's the opposite of summer camp week. These guys were probably included in that 72 that came back and said, this is unbelievable, Jesus. The demons listen to us. They go away and people are getting saved. But Jesus reminded them, he says, hey, don't, don't let this be your source of joy. Because Jesus knew there's coming a day when you're going to share the gospel. These people are going to arrest you and beat you for it. And they take it to heart because we see these apostles leave and it says they left rejoicing. Rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to be included in that type of treatment. Can you imagine that conversation? I mean, you can, you can easily picture the conversation the summer camp week. Man, that was so good. Like Those guys were so responsive to the gospel. That was unbelievable. These guys walk out of this beating and they're like, can you believe it? We've been counted worthy to suffer like our Messiah. I mean, not one person got there, back there got saved. But our names are written in heaven. We are doing what Jesus has called us to. And the affirmation that we get is that they're responding to us the same way they responded to him. They can't bear to have us continue talking about him. Because they rejoice over it. Because their joy is not found in their circumstances. It's found in the one who controls their circumstances. You could also write down Romans 5.11 to look at as well. Some of the things I wrote down, just the fact that we have the Holy Spirit. I referenced uh, Ephesians 1 earlier, the, earlier today, Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. We have spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing, Paul says in Ephesians. See, we all have different physical blessings. Some of us have jobs that pay us more than others. Some of us would love to trade places with each other based on our circumstances. you got a better car than I do. you got a better house than I do. God chooses to bestow physical blessings on different levels to different people. Paul says, every spiritual blessing has been given to you. Which means Tom doesn't get more propitiation than Jesse. There's not more of God's wrath that's satisfied for Tom than for Jesse. They have equal satisfaction of God's wrath. Doesn't matter their background, doesn't matter their family situation. That's something to rejoice over and to be thankful for constantly. Something that never changes, that we have every spiritual blessing. We have future glory to look forward to. Answered prayer, we have God's word, we have fellowship with other Christians. Conversions of other people. Philippians 1, we'll read this one. I've got others that I wish we had time to look at, we just don't today. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. This is a perfect example of what we're talking about. Paul's writing to Philippi, church at Philippi. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, this guy's in jail, he's being persecuted for his faith, has really served to advance the gospel. So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill, the latter to do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I mean, Paul's circumstances are awful. 
I mean, we would be having prayer meetings for this guy because of what he's going through. Paul writes and says, I'm so encouraged here. The gospel is being proclaimed to people. I'm in prison talking to prison workers that if I weren't here, they might not have ever heard the gospel. He says the gospel is going out. It's being proclaimed, and it's in that that I'm rejoicing. Not the circumstances that God's bringing me through, but in that I'm rejoicing. We have, to, we have to view our circumstances through that type of lens. When Lauren and I were going through our pregnancy, we would talk sometimes about the fact that we were, because they had identified the, the issue with AJ's kidneys early on, we were going to specialists all through that pregnancy. We were sitting down with doctors that had there not been a problem with AJ, we would have never interacted with. And we wanted to be, to be very um, joyful in that experience to let those doctors know that, that our assurance wasn't in what they found on tests and, and things that they looked at, that we were trusting in God's sovereignty with this situation, that we didn't need tests to determine how serious it was to determine if we were going to keep the baby or not, that we were, we were putting our trust in the fact that God knows what he's doing here, God is good, God is growing AJ the way that he wants him to. And we wanted to try to show that as much as possible to doctors that we never would have come in contact with otherwise. Paul was doing the same thing here in prison. The question that I have to ask myself that I wrote down in in my notes is, do I start my day with this intention? Do I start my day every day with the intention to rejoice all day long in whatever the day brings? You see, I find myself superficially sometimes praying, God, give us a good day today. I have to stop and think, like, what does that even mean? I mean, because really what I mean is, God, let the circumstances break my way today. That's what I mean by good. Let, let, let the circumstances that I want to happen today break my way today. But I want to become the type of guy who more and more is praying, God, give me the wisdom to rejoice in whatever you bring my way today. Here's what I'd like to see happen today. Here are the circumstances that I'd love to see transpire today. But God, I want you to prepare me right off the bat. Help me to rejoice in whatever happens today. That's a simple prayer that you can pray on the way to work. Pray in your bed as you're waking up if you stay at home during the day. God, I don't know what today holds. I know what I want it to hold. I know if I was in control, this is what the day would look like. But God, help me to rejoice in whatever you've got planned for today. He says, always rejoice. Back in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, continually pray. Always rejoice, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, he doesn't necessarily break it down this way, but as I was studying, it kind of made sense to me to think of these instructions this way, that the end goal is for us to be people that rejoice always. That's not a natural response. That's not who we naturally are. And so I see these next two commands as steps to how to become the type of person who rejoices always. Hey, I want to be the guy who wakes up every morning and says, I don't know what's going to happen today, but I'm going to be, um, be rejoicing over the fact that God ordained this day. God's directing me this day. God is working good for me this day. But that's not my natural response. So how do I get to being that type of person? And I think these two things that he calls us to next help us to get to that type of mindset. Praying continually. I put in your notes there, it's step one to joy. Step one to being the type of person that always rejoices when he tells us to pray in this way when he tells us to pray without ceasing it's not a um it's not a call to 
abandon all of the responsibilities and just pray all day long. I mean, obviously we know that. But he does communicate to us that we're to be praying always, praying without ceasing. It's a continual attitude of prayer, a continual attitude of prayer. And we did a retreat a while back at Mount Gilead, and the podcasts are on our website if you'd like to go back and listen to those strictly on prayer. And we talked about being the type of people who are known for praying constantly, praying without ceasing. It's the type of people who pray all day long basically without saying amen. It's just I'm, I'm constantly in a state of prayer. As I go from place to place in my day, I'm praying about things. I'm praying about what I'm experiencing there. I'm praying for wisdom about how to handle things that I'm dealing with. It's someone who's constantly leaning and depending on God's power in their life. Praying without ceasing. Someone who's just constantly praying throughout the day. Little short prayers. Little things that, that we're constantly turning our attention back to God and His will. Praying that His will would be done throughout the day. It's something that's constantly recurring, not continuously occurring. Meaning that we're not always praying, but we're constantly coming back to prayer. It's something that's constantly reoccurring in our life. We see that the early church was obviously devoted to this um, in Acts 1.14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. We know from Acts 2.42 that they were devoting themselves to prayer. We want prayer to be a big part of what we do here on Sundays. And we're still trying to figure out how we want to structure our service every week. But we know we want prayer to be a big part of what we do. I'm telling you, I think these, these things, because they're being read corporately, this is a letter that the church would have gotten. He's reading it corporately to the church. Hey, this is from Paul. They get these instructions. They're Greek, so they recognize that these verbs are plural. So they would have identified this as, hey, we're supposed to do this together. And what better way to do that together than when we come together on Sunday? So we want to make sure that prayer is a big part of what we do here at Sovereign Hope, even on Sundays. I need to pray for wisdom to handle my day joyfully. James 1.5 In verse 2 it says, Count it all joys, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. I think you see those two passages connected together. That, that James says, you count it joy when you fall into difficult circumstances. And if you need wisdom about how to do that, you pray to God, because he gives wisdom. He gives it liberally. He'll shower that upon you. And so, as we become people who pray constantly, we're trying to be people who rejoice all the time. We need to pray constantly that God would give us wisdom to know how to handle our day in a way that is joyful. Philippians 4, 6-7, through 7, we see this same pattern. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul gives that same pattern to the church at Philippi. He says, you rejoice always. The way you get to that point is you pray all the time. You, you cast your cares upon him. The way you don't worry, the way you don't be anxious is you pray constantly so that you can rejoice constantly. For us to be the type of people who rejoice always, we've got to continually be in prayer. And that second step to joy, at all times be thankful. 
at all times be thankful. Now, this is different than what he tells us in verse 16 to rejoice always. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. In, in my notes I put, it's continually finding things to express thanks for. It's continually striving to be content no matter the circumstances. So the way I become a type of person who's always rejoicing is I start small. I start giving thanks in all circumstances. I start identifying things that I can be thankful for, especially in the midst of circumstances where at first glance you'd say there's nothing to be thankful for in that situation. Paul's being persecuted for his faith. He's in jail, separated from his family. He's got no place to live. We become the type of people who rejoice constantly when we start small and we start finding little things to be thankful for. And it starts to grow us into the type of people who we're always rejoicing. If we're always looking for little things, baby steps, always looking for little things to be thankful for, before we realize it, we're always being thankful for things. We're we're rejoicing always in all circumstances. And I trust that we can always find things to be thankful for, even in the worst circumstances, especially if we're drawing our attention back to the things that we've been talking about today, things that don't change. The fact that our name's written in heaven. Things that are assured to us that we have every spiritual blessing. Those are things that don't change. So we can always find things to be thankful for in the midst of changing circumstances. So we can be the type of people who rejoice always. A lost person can't be that. A lost person doesn't have things to always be thankful for that will never change. Their joy always rests in their circumstances. That's all they've got. So a lost person can never be someone who rejoices always. A believer can because we've got things that don't change, things that are eternal, things that we can hope for every single day, even if our circumstances aren't that desirable. In Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, going back to the old book of Habakkuk, you don't go there as much as you probably should. I don't go there as much as I should. Tyson wrote a song off of these verses, though. Um, Have we done a better job of correlating that we would have sung it today Um, in verse 17 of Habakkuk 3 though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls I mean he's basically describing like famine I mean if there's absolutely no food Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Habakkuk says, I can find ways to rejoice even when I'm completely without food. It's the exact opposite of the children of Israel. If you've read through the history of Israel, there's several different places, or at least one specific place, where The children of Israel cry out to God and Moses, and they're like, give us food. We don't have any food. We don't like this manna. And you're like, wait a second. You just complain because you don't have any food, and then you followed it up with, we don't like the food that you've given us. The fact is, God has been very good to you. He gives you food every single day. All you have to do is walk outside your doorstep, and it's there every morning. You don't even have to store it up because he's going to do it again tomorrow. 
You don't have to be like everybody else and grow your food and labor in, in the field to get your food. God drops it on your doorstep every day. The children of Israel are like, we need food. We don't like this food. We don't have any food. Habakkuk says, if, if really, if I really didn't have any food, not just food I didn't like, but if I had zero food, I've got salvation to rejoice in. I've got a God of salvation who's working good in my life, and I can be the type of person who rejoices always. Philippians 4.11. Paul's talking to church at Philippi once again. We'll start in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's startling about that passage, and when we were teaching through Philippians, we really nailed down on that verse for a while. Paul's saying, you can take everything away from me, and I'm still joyful. You can give me everything, and it doesn't affect my joy. He's basically saying, my joy doesn't go up when I have everything breaking my way, and it doesn't go down when things aren't going my way. I am rejoicing always, no matter what my circumstances are. That's a hard place to be in. And we can try to fight to be the people that don't lose our joy when things don't break our way. But can we be the type of people that are so joyful, so abounding in, in, in an attitude of rejoicing to God that we don't have more joy when things are breaking our way? That we've reached a point that we are so content with God that he can give things to us or take things away from us. We're the same person. We're the same person. Paul says, I figured out the secret. I figured out the secret of how to do that. And he tells us that we can do it too because in verse 13, in context, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is what we can do through Christ who strengthens us. We can be content people. This verse gets misapplied all the time as though it's like the superpower for how a Christian can do whatever he wants to do through the power of Jesus. No, Paul says you can be the type of person who's content when nothing goes your way. When you don't win football games, when you don't have things break your way, you can be the type of person who's content through the strength that comes through Jesus. So I see these as two steps to being the type of people who rejoice always. If we can be the type of people who pray constantly, always giving our cares to God, always being mindful of the fact that God is in control, depending on him every single day, praying that God will give us wisdom every single day to be joyful people. And then if we can be the type of people who are constantly looking for things to be thankful for every single day, then we grow into the type of people who are rejoicing always. It's also interesting to note that in Scripture, a lack of joy, a lack of thanksgiving, is an expression of the unregenerate people. Romans one twenty one. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul gives us a picture of, of mankind in general. And he says that part of our sin problem is the fact that we fail to give thanks to God. Ephesians 5, 3-5 through 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Joy and thanksgiving is a characteristic of a believer. He says, before you're saved, you're sexually immoral, meaning you try to take sex outside the context of what God gives it to you for. You're not, you're not grateful, you're not thankful, you're not rejoicing over how God's created sex and, and how he created it to be enjoyed. You're, you're not being grateful and thankful because you're trying to take it outside its context. Covetousness, you're not, you're not being content. You're, you're wanting things that God hasn't given you. He says you replace all those things with thanksgiving. And then in 18 verse 20, or verses 18 through 20, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Back in 1 Thessalonians 5, and we're going to wrap up with this today. We'll pick up here with verse 19 next week. But this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You'll remember back in chapter 4, Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through our Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul's drawing off that same mindset again. This is the will of God for you, that you rejoice always, that you pray without ceasing, that you give thanks in all your circumstances. So we don't really need any application for today. The whole sermon is application for today. We're to be people that, that do these three commands. That these three commands reflect our relationship to God. We've talked about how we relate from member to leader, from leader to member, from member to member. Now we're talking about how we relate from member to God, member to our shepherd. That we're to rejoice always about what he's doing in our life. We're to be fully dependent on him as we pray constantly to him, casting everything to him. We're not worrying. We're not anxious people. We're praying that God will give us the grace to see how we can rejoice today, no matter what it brings us. And then we're giving thanks to him in all circumstances. So we're finding those little things to be thankful for all day long, all week long. And we grow into the type of people that he calls us to be, people who rejoice always. Next week we'll see how we also have a responsibility to um, to fight being the idle person, the faint-hearted person, and the weak person through God's Word. We're going to see what it means to not quench the Spirit, to not despise prophecies, to test everything, to hold fast to what is good, to abstain from every form of evil. So I encourage you to be here next week as we look more in depth about uh, what it means to quench the Spirit, what it means to accept prophecies within the context of this local church, how we test everything, Hold fast to what's good. Abstain from what's evil. Before I pray, does anybody have any questions about this portion of the text? Maybe I can explain a little bit better.
or questions about anything else that I said that you didn't have in your notes that I can help clarify. All right, well, I want to encourage you um, as we get ready to close this out that um, you apply what you've heard today, um, that you, you take these three simple things to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances. They're simple in what they look like on paper, obviously not simple in practical application, but to take these three things that we've been instructed by Paul to do um, and see how we can do those things together. We talked last week about how to do that with, with our city, the way the city's set up, that you, you have a way to communicate with each other throughout the week, to share how God's working in your life as an encouragement to others. Remember, this is corporate plural verbs. To connect with each other in our connecting points that you can find on our website when those meet. How to meet up together throughout the week and encourage one another. Encourage you to, to make that a practical way for you to put into practice the things that we've even talked about today um, so that we learn how to do these things um, together. I'm going to pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father, we we are so grateful and thankful, not just because it's the time of Thanksgiving on our man-made calendar, but because you've called us to this type of mindset in your word. And God, I'm thankful this morning that you certainly haven't left it to us to where we have to think of reasons to be thankful. God, you have filled your word with spiritual truth. An inexhaustible list of things that we can be thankful for every single day. Specifically the fact that you have written our names in heaven if we're believers. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never accepted you as their Savior. God, that you would help them to identify the sin problem that exists within their hearts. Father, that you would help them to realize they can do absolutely nothing to fix it, nothing to cleanse themselves to where they can earn your favor. God, I pray that you would reveal the truth of the gospel to them, that, that Jesus is everything, that Jesus is the one who has paved our way to heaven. God, they would submit to your authority today. For those of us that are believers, Father, I pray that you would help us to, to see to see with a heavenly mindset and not an earthly mindset. Because, God, we know that if, we, if we're thinking earthly, our joy gets shaped every single day by our circumstances. God, we don't want to be the type of people who pray for a good day and mean that we hope the circumstances break our way, and if it doesn't, it's not a good day. God, we want to be people that are completely submitted to your wisdom, your authority, your sovereignty, knowing that whatever you have in store for us, this day, this week, it's for our good. And so, God, we can find ways to rejoice even in the worst earthly circumstances possible. We can be like Paul and rejoice over the fact that the gospel is being proclaimed, that our names are written in heaven. God, I pray that we'd be those type of people. God, sovereign hope's not going to make a difference in this area if we're not these type of people. And we know that. So, God, I pray that we would take these steps to being the type of people who rejoice always that we would pray continually. We would start off small and try to be thankful in the little things in every circumstance that we would identify things to be thankful for. That you would grow this church together as we do this together. God, help us to be the type of people who can help the idle, help the faint-hearted, help the weak. God, I pray that more and more we would have less and less of those type of people in our church so that when those type of people come to our church, 
We are equipped and ready to minister to them because we've been faithful to minister to each other. We've come become the type of people who are trusting in you and are content in you. We praise you for this day. Praise you for the work that you're doing in our life. Pray that you give us wisdom as we serve you until we come together again. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.